Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DevOps for Everyone. George Hansaris is the Director of Cloud Platform Engineering at Citrix. He's an interesting guest because he hasn't always worked in the enterprise world. In a previous life, George worked with startups and mid-sized companies, so his perspective of Kubernetes adoption and the challenges is a fair one. George shares the definition of sovereign cloud in this chat, and we get to hear about his passion project. Ploigos. Just before we get to the conversation, I want to point you in the right direction if you're a candidate looking for your next full-time or contract position, or if you're someone, like everyone is at the moment, looking to hire Kubernetes talent. Reach out to me at joe.bignall at interquestgroup.com, or you can head over to my LinkedIn page and check out some of my content. Hope you enjoy the pod with George. All right, great. Why don't you uh, why don't you give a, an introduction to yourself, where you work, and what your role is? Sure. So um, I work at Citrix over the past uh, about two years. Um, I work as the director of cloud platform engineering in the in the broader platform engineering organization. What we do in in my teams are two different things. Um, the one being traditional, you know, cloud platform engineering, um, optimizing Kubernetes infrastructure. Um, building tools to to help teams transition and adopt cloud technologies and kind of, you know, the cloud native stack, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. And then the second part is, is what we call sovereign cloud, which is um, platform engineering, essentially, but for highly compliant environments. Highly compliant, like financial services, insurance? Well, that it's usually when we, when we say sovereign cloud, um, the term is mostly being used for for you know regions where you have local regulations, local restrictions. You probably have to have local infrastructure specific compliance needs. Um, examples are you know FedRAMP in the US, ISMAP in Japan, IRAP and and you know G Cloud in the UK and so on. Got it. Okay, so. I know Citrix is a huge multinational organization, but do you want to just give kind of like a definition of what Citrix do? Yeah, so um, in, in the gist of it is that we we want to enable work, uh, secure work for everyone, uh, anytime, anywhere. Um, that means providing remote uh, virtual desktop infrastructure, what we call desktop as a service, cloud-based desktops. Um, providing virtual applications, cloud-based apps, productivity, and so on. Um, the second part is is the network part, uh, application deliveries, and so on. Um, the network gateways and that 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 part of you know that that product line. And the third is is the collaboration tooling, which is um, ShareFile. Uh, Podio and Write Signature, which are kind of productivity apps for collaboration in the enterprise, if I can put it that way. It's interesting. So in my last recruitment agency, when we had uh, to work remotely or from home, we'd log in for a VPN and it was powered by Citrix. That's how I know what the business does. (laughs) I'm a user. So hearing about what Citrix does and knowing about what you do, I guess that, and we'll get onto this a bit more later, but just to kind of cover it really quickly, I guess that security in every single bit of work that you do has to be kind of like a first thought, whether you're developing a new app, allowing access from a new user group or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's 
So security is kind of front and center in everything we think about, we we do, and you know, in every in all of our interactions, um, because we we kind of have, as you said, Citric is 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 a big company and. We power 98% of, of Fortune 500 companies, um, which means we we have to make sure that that you know we we actually enable them to be even 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 more secure. So you know, we we have to be secure ourselves a lot. 98% of Fortune 500s. Yep, and 99% of Fortune 100s. So yeah, a lot of responsibility. We, <laughs> we we have some somewhat of a of a responsibility um supporting those those guys wow yeah no fair enough okay so um so let's jump in and one thing that struck me when i I looked at your profile when we had a first chat a few weeks ago is that you're someone that you know working in the enterprise world now but you haven't always been someone that's only worked in the enterprise world you've got startup experience i know you've got mid-sized companies on your profile as well so what when we talk about Kubernetes, what would you say is the main differences between Kubernetes adoption and the challenges from an enterprise point of view and a startup point of view? Well, I, I think it, the, the, the biggest issue for adoption for both kind of aligns. So Kubernetes for me is, is probably one of my, my favorite pieces of infrastructure for the past few years. And, and I've been using it in most of my, uh, most of my projects lately. Um, you know, when you are what we call a micro company, which is like startups below 10 people, um, using Kubernetes, just using it is something, you know, it, it, there are a lot of managed services, so you can you can start using it right away. But then using best practices and scale it, scaling that out kind of needs expertise and needs people to do that for you. So that's probably the hardest part when it comes to, uh, to you know, really small startups adopting and so on. On the on the far other side of the spectrum, uh, you know, if we go to large enterprises, thousands of employees and such, you again the issue is that you have to have specialists to do uh, to to actually develop anything you want on Kubernetes. And when what you want is high high compliance, security standards, reporting, that kind of things, you kind of take you know the the OSS version of Kubernetes, the open source, and you have to do a lot of work on top on that on top of that in order to to integrate with enterprise identity, um, have proper monitoring, be compliant, and all and all that thing. So, um, you know, across across the board, I would say that the difficulty of adopting is expertise, and that you know it's it's an infrastructure tool that doesn't come with everything out of the box. You you kind of have to invest in it um and you know building greenfield projects out of nowhere on on top of it requires time requires effort and, and definitely re- requires expertise yeah so would you say that the startups typically rely more on outsourcing kubernetes expertise until they have the right person or people that can actually bring it in-house and then start utilizing best practice yeah yeah exactly so what we see nowadays is that startups will just you know, deploy a, a cluster on AWS on EKS or on Azure on AKS, and you know, just just leave it there and and deploy everything on top of that. And they they aren't going to do much work on optimizing. Probably, you know, you might see an, a service mesh being deployed, but 
that's kind of it. Um, and then as they scale, they're going to be able to bring, you know, at, at, at the size of like 15, 20 engineers, that's, that's usually the scale where you start having DevOps specialists that can come and bring the Kubernetes expertise and kind of optimize that. Mm. So it's the, it's the DevOps guys that are mostly using Kubernetes in your experience rather than kind of software developers or SREs, platform engineers. Well, it, it depends on the usage. If if you wanna, you know, if, if you want to apply best practices in terms of, um, you know, uh, different deployments, uh, the Kubernetes architecture, um, segregating the network namespaces, uh, uh, even even the underlying infrastructure hardening, then you you kind of ha need to have people that are you know that have this ops expertise rather than mm. the dev background. Yeah, no, fair enough. So um, in terms of Citrix, I know you spoke about the number of customers you've got at Fortune 100 and Fortune 500, but how much of your client base roughly would you say is startup customers? Well, it historically, it hasn't been. Um, so, you know, traditionally Citrix, the, the, you know, the, the, big, the big product of Citrix used to be VDI, Virtual Desktop Infrastructure. Um, which essentially is desktop as a service where the customer can manage their infrastructure, their deployments, and so on. That, as you can understand, needed a lot of expertise to run and build, but you know, it was harder for small companies to adopt. Now, what, what we are doing as we transition into the DAS model, the desktop as a service model, is you know, we kind of make it a lot easier for, for, for the startups to uh, to start using, uh, to start using desktop as a service uh, by Citrix. So, I, I I think as we as we now deploy the DAS offering, it's it's becoming more and more compelling to startups instead of buying these super expensive machines and having to configure everything out of nowhere. You just you know you you buy anything, just a laptop, and then you have desktop in, uh, the desktop as a service, which has you know the, all the firepower and the applications. And it can be pre-configured with dev tools and all that kind of good stuff. So, so I expect more startups to 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 see this as, as their as their scaling solution. Okay, so the the desktop as a service service <laughs> wasn't specifically designed for startups, but it's going to allow you to bring on more startups as customers moving forward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it it wasn't designed for startups, but I you know uh, there are a lot of times, and again going back to as you mentioned, my startup background there are a lot of times where i thought you know as we work on that you know I, I i wish i had something like that back in the day where we wouldn't have to procure laptops and you know uh, spend days and days setting up new environments and all that kind of stuff so i think it, it can speed up things for for companies that need more time to develop yeah, it's a great idea i don't know the figure off the top of my head but when you think about the amount of startups that are entering the software as a service world or the software world in general, I think if you don't cater to that market in some way, you're missing out on a huge customer base potentially. Yep. So uh, mm -hmm. no, that's brilliant. I'd be really interested to know more. Is there some, is there like a, a white paper or is there anything online on the Citrix website that we can go and read about desktop as a service? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there are actually uh, a lot of resources. If you just go to citrix.com, you're going to see, you know, it's, uh, under products and solutions, you're going to see a lot about DAS and VDI. Um, okay, and that's perfect. where it is.
Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, I'll be really interested to have a look at that. I'll do that after. And I'll post it in the show notes as well in case anyone else is interested. So just to go back a step, you, you, you mentioned about EKS and you were talking about a couple of different cloud providers a few minutes ago. So obviously, I can imagine that Citrix utilize all three of the major clouds, probably as well as some others, but the three big ones as well. What can you tell us what's not confidential in terms of projects you're working on or what your team's doing at the moment that incorporates all three major cloud providers? Well, so indeed, we, we use all three, I would say the, the about 60% or 65% is Azure, and then second is AWS, and then GCP is something that's, that's growing at the moment a lot. Um, so the, the, you know, the northern star of, of, of platform engineering of what we are doing is to enable infrastructure that is provider agnostic. We are not there yet, um, but we want to be able to provide the same tools and the same experience and the same exact infrastructure for someone that wants to deploy in Azure, AWS, GCP, without them even you know, knowing what, what's happening underneath. So that's, that's kind of the, the goal of the projects we're working on. So you know when you say Azure is, is number one, that's... Um... That surprised me. I assumed that you would have said AWS, but would that link because the majority of your customers, when you're you know setting up a virtual environment, that they've got a Microsoft Office suite, so naturally they'll have a Microsoft in-house, and Azure would go with that, or is that not related? Well, um, historically, yes, our customers were were I think uh, Microsoft heavy. Uh, you know, Citrix historically catered to the to you know large enterprises and and you know they they were kind of Microsoft centric, hmm. um, but I think it's more internal rather than external. So Citrix is also a company that is my so we have a lot of infrastructure using uh, Microsoft containers. We have a lot of C sharp .NET stuff. So um, historically, there is a huge know how and huge expertise in in Microsoft stack. Uh, that's why that was the first one that was built up, uh, Azure. Um, newer, newer things like, uh, as I said, you know, the content collaboration solutions like uh, uh, like Sharefile and, and Podium, that that you know, which are the the newest uh, products, are on AWS. And then you know, because we we have a lot going on in GCP now, GCP is growing a lot. But you know, it's it's the latest that's been catching up. So GCP is growing though, yeah. Uh, yeah, GCP GCP is growing a lot. Um, yeah, GCP is growing a lot over the past year. Or so yeah. so uh, uh, there there is a, you know there is news about us partnering with Google in order to provide. Um, the desktop as a service experience for Google customers as well. So yeah, so you know we're we're kind of um, investing in GCP as well in that sense. Okay, so we can go online and see about that as well. That's a huge partnership. <laughs> yes, yes, it's 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 a huge partnership. And generally, I think um, the future the future is kind of you know to 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 build upon these partnerships and and be able to, as you said before, be able to provide the DAS experience across the boards, large or big enterprises. Hmm. Do you think that startups would particularly favor one cloud over the other as you start to work with more of them? Or could that be across the board, you reckon? Um, well, up to up to a point, 
um, you definitely have to choose. I don't think you can be uh, good in everything. Um, and you know, if, if you're like a team of, of 20, 30 engineers, you definitely cannot support all three environments as good. So it's better if you stick to one and then as you scale out, then you can think about uh, multiple cloud providers. Um, and I, I think we kind of talked about this in, in our uh, OR map that it, it's really hard and you know the, the hybrid cloud promise still hasn't caught up. So you have to be careful if you select three, why you're doing it. It's not like you can deploy a Kubernetes cluster and it can be at the same time on EKS and AKS. So, you know, Kubernetes Federation is kind of picking up this year, but we're still far away from that. So I would advise, you know, startups to stick to one, be good at one cloud, be reliable, build on that, and then try and move on. Because of the complexity and the number of features in AWS and Amazon, I, I think that a lot of people I talk to in the startup world, because that's particularly my network, is that they rely heavily on AWS more than the others. That's why I was quite surprised to hear about your experience of Azure being number one, but obviously when you explain it, it makes sense. So I think that AWS will, will be out in front for a while. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the from the startup side, I think I, I, I would say like 90% of the startups I know I've worked for or I've worked with uh, are AWS heavy or AWS only, um, mm. you know, and, and they have invested a lot with, with their startup programs and all and a lot earlier. So I think that kind of makes sense. I was speaking to, um, on that CEO and founder, uh, Alex Chukup last week, and he was saying similar kind of things along the sort of hybrid cloud scenario where even you know like amazon and aws are deploying on each other's servers now so there's so much cross collaboration going on with the cloud providers themselves that it becomes less of a factor when your customers are using one cloud or the other because they can typically just lean on one and deploy on the other anyway so yeah yeah and and that's that's where it's gonna um you know it's, it's gonna make a huge difference for startups and and you know medium and small size companies trying to to go multi-cloud. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Was you at KubeCon this year? Uh, no, unfortunately, I, I wasn't able to make it. Couldn't make it. You're, you're in my boat then, unfortunately. It looked brilliant in Valencia. But two of the major talking points that came from KubeCon uh, were cost optimization and what we've already been talking about, which was security. So you've kind of given us a bit of an insight right at the beginning when you said it's first and foremost on your mind. But in terms of Kubernetes security, we'll start with that one. What's your thoughts on the whole sort of Kubernetes security ecosystem at the moment? Well, it, it it's something that thankfully uh, this year and last, it's kind of been picking up. Um, I, what I usually use an, as an example to understand how, you know, security... Uh, in the context of Kubernetes has been growing in interest. Um, last, no, last year, at 2020, uh, uh, NIST 853 was released, which is the compliance standards for uh, Kubernetes and container hardening. And that was uh, revision five. So revision five had um, about 1200 controls. So 1200 points that you have to look into to harden Kubernetes and containers. The previous revision had 500, so more than double uh, 
um, the, the, the points to look into and make sure that are hardened and secure. So it's kind of picking up. Uh, people start caring a lot and looking a lot deeper. But this also says that you know Kubernetes is becoming more and more um, at the forefront of, of attackers' attention. Yeah. And do you think the reason that there's been a double uh, more than double in terms of the points to look at is because of the complexity around Kubernetes and the rate of it being adopted. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think Kubernetes Kubernetes is you know the, the complexity is there. Of course, we know that, and and it was there, but it has grown. But I think it's more of of uh, in, in you know because of the adoption and because of you know actually digging deeper and finding more vulnerabilities, being able to find more, um, you know, more threat sources and so on. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a number of companies that focus purely on Kubernetes security, right? They'll either build like a security mesh over your infrastructure or they'll deploy uh, Kubernetes or DevOps or backend experts into your team as an external to be able to provide that extra layer of security while you're going out to your customers. I think that it's not a new topic, right? So Kubernetes security mm -hmm. has been around since KubeCon last year, but I feel like it's a much deeper conversation now where there's so many more vulnerabilities and there's reports you can find on LinkedIn and on Google about how much, uh, how many attacks are happening on your clusters and who has access to what and what happens if one of your employees has access, but I don't know what they've got access to. So that I can imagine that those 1200 points would be 2400 points next year. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, uh, you know, as, as you as we hear the news and we hear uh, Kubernetes uh, breaches that end up to more and more valuable um, breaches, then, you know, we are going to start to care even more. And yeah, that has I, to do again with with going back to enterprise adoption. So, you know, if it's a tool that is used only in really small companies or only in dev environments, you know, uh, again, NIST and NSA and CISA and those guys aren't going to really care. But, you know, if if Citrix is using Kubernetes in production, then it kind of matters. Do you think the um, CKS, the new Kubernetes security certificate, is going to be mm -hmm. uh, picked up? quite well i think well i've already seen a lot of people in my network in linkedin just you know posting i just got certified and so ah. on so i i think it's already been picking up yeah yeah and you know it, it in in my opinion it makes more sense doing that than doing the ckab so the cka has huge value the cks has big value the ckab i think has a bit less in my mind okay that's interesting i think the cks based on this conversation you and I are having right now, is going to be picking up a lot over the next few years. It's a worthwhile investment for anybody going down that Kubernetes security kind of architecture route. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what about cost optimization, Kubernetes specifically? What's your thoughts on cost optimization? Well, again, it's it's something that, um, that I, I see a lot of people not addressing. So we see a lot of waste um, generally historically i've seen that a lot in the past when you, when we talk about clustered systems distributed systems we see people just spinning up machines and you know saying okay i need i need five five nodes because you know i need a cluster and essentially you don't do right sizing you don't do proper uh nodes node type selections um you know so there are a lot of things you have to think about before but you know, cost is also something you have to continuously monitor 
And Kubernetes has a lot of capabilities, especially you know, if you go to the cloud providers, you can purchase reserved instances. As we said, of course, you can do you know, right sizing and that kind of stuff. You can optimize scheduler configuration. You, ha you have a lot of things to do in Kubernetes to optimize cost. And it, if you don't, I've, I've seen some, some terrible numbers. So yeah, it's, it's something you have to be careful about. I think you can get into <laughs> massive amounts of, uh, call it debt, call it trouble. If you've got pods running in the background and you forget about them two years later, you get a bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Fair enough. So in our offline chat, you mentioned sovereign cloud and you, you spoke about it really briefly at the start of this as well, but I've never heard that term before. So do you want to just give me a bit more insight into sovereign cloud? Cause it was really interesting. Yeah, so uh, essentially, sovereign cloud is is um, if I can put it in you know business value terms, sovereign cloud is the work we do in order to help um, highly compliant, usually governmental customers to come in the cloud. So um, that usually means deploying locally. A lot of a lot of the jurisdictions, you know, if if you want to have uh a department agency they probably have to have local infrastructure locally stored data um specific access controls infrastructure access reporting standards that kind of stuff so and, and that also applies to system users so system access the rotating secrets rotating monitoring secret certificates and that kind of things rotating and reporting user access and you know, in some cases that can either, even reach uh, on-call on support and so on. So you might have cases where uh, you, you only need, for a UK agency, you might only need UK citizens to provide on-call support for a service. So, you know, that, that brings up the need and you can have uh, just-in-time on-call, you can have uh, just-in-time uh, access management for on-call engineers. Uh, based that on impacted customers. So if a customer is one of those agencies, then you have to be careful who accesses the, their infrastructure. So all the, all those kind of things is, is part of the sovereign cloud. So with customers that you have within that sort of sovereign cloud world, that sovereign cloud part of Citrix, would they be on different servers or different parts of your network to like a startup company? Well, it, it kind of depends on the requirements. So there are cases that you might need a dedicated deployment. There are cases where you, you have specific requirements, but you're allowed to have multi-tenant deployment. So, you know, again, highly depends on, on, on you know, the region and the compliance standards you, uh, you work with. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'd never heard that term before. So, uh, yeah, that was interesting to, to find out about that. Just to go back one step. Um, as you can tell, the structure of my uh, podcast is all over the place. <laughs> but just to go back a step in terms of Kubernetes security, I wanted to ask you about your opinion on DevSecOps, because we were talking mm -hmm. about the rise in Kubernetes adoption. And I've also seen a rise in DevSecOps, you know, for job titles and job postings and stuff like that. So what's your opinion of DevSecOps? Well, um, it's 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 not a good one in practice. So in theory, it's a good one. But I think it's one of those things that, that we kind of we we say it more than we do it not not we as citrix but i think generally the, the community um because devsecops is is not about you know just 
applying, you know, deploying Sneak or any other, you know, just having, um, uh, you know, software composition analysis, that kind of stuff. You know, th that's that's a part of it. But you know, the biggest part of it, it's you know, it's a cultural shift. Is it means you're actually shifting security left. It means that you have to have security aware um, development teams as you're shifting it left. So, and and then it's not just about you know scanning code and scanning a container and that's it. There's much more you have to do in the life cycle. So CI should should um, should have integrated uh, SCAs and CD could have integrated DAST and so on. So it's you you kind of have to rethink the whole process rather than just you know okay I, I deployed sneak so um you know or i deployed check marks and now i'm i'm doing devsecops do you think that security should just be part of a devsecops engineer's makeup well it it that that's a hard one so i i'm kind of one of the uh, of, of the people saying that we have shifted left too much. Um, of course, it makes sense to be react to be proactive than reactive, and and that's what DevSecOps is all about. But you have to do it in the right place, uh, in, in the right way, and with automation. You know, just throwing security to development teams is just going to reduce time to market for new features. If you do it in the right way and you integrate it properly in the pipelines and you, you educate the team, um, and and you know of course it's gonna add some overhead, but the value is gonna be far greater and the overhead is gonna be uh, smaller. So I would say when we say shift something left, same with observability, security, anything, I would say we should be a bit careful and try to protect the teams. Yeah, that's a good point. So in Citrix, do you have people dedicated purely to a security role or do you have DevSecOps teams or? Well, we have, uh, so we, we have a few different roles covering this. So we have teams that are actually building the pipelines and they're doing the, you know, the actual DevSecOps parts. We have, we have the global security organization, which is responsible for, you know, the security standards and, and directing what is going to happen in DevOps. So they're, they're kind of our stakeholders to give us the input and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then we have the teams that are implementing the pipelines, the security pipelines, and then uh, then they're doing that. So um, it's so Citrix Engineering is kind of a big organization. It's it's about 2000 people. So we have we have different teams to do to do those different things. Um, so I think it's being done in a way where the overhead is still little. I, I see teams um, talking about developer experience and time to market being reduced. So you know these these discussions always have some kind of friction. But I think um, I, I think we're doing it in a in a decent way. Hmm. So how many of those two thousand engineers uh, do you manage? <laughs> Um, well, All including <laughs> some hiring we're doing now, uh, we're, I think we're at 70, 72, 71, 72, including myself. What under your, uh, guidance? Yep. yep. God, how'd you get time to do anything else? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, yeah, I, well, I, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough that the team, the team is really, really good. Um, yeah, we talk about self-managed teams and self-governed teams, and we really have some people that that 
you know, besides having the title of a manager, right, the director, we have some people who are true leaders and, and you know, can actually do technical leadership and, and lead the way for for all of those people. So um, I, I'm just doing the paperwork. The team is, is leading itself. <laughs> I was going to ask if you are still hands-on. Um, unfortunately, not. Uh, not really in Citrix uh, or, you know, not as much as, as I would want. Um, mm. Uh, but you know, in, in my spare time, I do you know, I do I do write some some stuff of my own. I do I do some coding, so just to keep your just, knowledge fresh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that, that's good. That makes sense. One thing that I really wanted to talk about as well, um, as we come to the end of our conversation, is and tell me if I've butchered the name of this, but uh, Ploigos. Yep. Yep. Okay, so your your side project, right? So can you just um, I know you and I had a chat offline about this. Uh, I haven't had too much time to look into it, but but first of all, what was the inspiration behind it? Is it you know you wanted to keep your your knowledge fresh, um, and and what is it really? So yeah, so Ploigos uh, essentially the word means navigator. So the concept is you have Kubernetes, who is the you know uh, Kubernetes is like the ma the master, and then navigate. The Ploigos means is usually the, the person who tells Kubernetes where to go. That's that's kind of the concept behind the naming of it. Um, so it the idea started, as you said, it was something I just wanted to do to to keep my skills warm. But then um, it also had the reasoning to solve a lot of the things that we have talked about today. So. Um, one of the issues that the biggest issue that I wanted to solve with this is uh, federating Kubernetes. So being able to have a single cluster uh, across different environments. So you can have a cluster which is has three nodes in AWS and four nodes in Azure and one node in GCP and three on-prem. And that's a single cluster. And you can manage that as a single cluster. That's, that, that, was, that was like the first, uh, the, the POC, that was the MVP. Uh -huh. And then on top of that, the concept is to kind of build, I call it batteries included Kubernetes distribution, um, which means being out of the box, being able to have reporting for a lot of you know, compliance standards and so on, being able to have integration, integrating Kubernetes RBAC with enterprise identity um, and, and you know, solving those kind of stuff to reduce time to market for you know, like a full-fledged fully functional Kubernetes deployment. Hmm. Interesting. So when did you start this? Uh, that's been something that's running about uh, six months uh, on the weekends. <laughs> yeah. Um, now it's, I think, at the point where it's kind of usable, at least the Federation part um, and some of the, of the, of the other features. Uh, and hopefully I think it's going to be good to to at least a part of it to be open sourced by you know after the summer at some point September or October. I was going to ask, is it a project purely for you, or is it going to be distributed for people to actually make use of? No, it's it's something you know. It's I, I'm I'm one of the people saying that if you solve a problem, you know, if you solve an infrastructure problem, then other people shouldn't have to solve it again. So, hmm. um, yeah, ideally, it's going to reach a point where it's going to be open sourceable. Brilliant. Exactly what Kubernetes is. Yep. 
following in the footsteps if it gets as big as <laughs> kubernetes then brilliant <laughs> that's great and people can actually go and check out ploigos online well you can you can check out uh .co um which is the website there is very few information at the moment but as as it you know as it goes now you can just see what it's about and and that kind of things but then you know as it goes i plan to put some more info there mm, brilliant okay well george uh this has been brilliant i appreciate you taking out uh, an hour of your day especially as you're managing 70 odd people i know you've got a lot to do <laughs> so uh, it's been really really interesting I'm, I'm grateful for your for your time just before we go a couple of closing comments you mentioned earlier that um you or your team is hiring so uh, where can people go to find out more details about that so um if you if anyone goes at jobs.citrix.com um and search by uh, either cloud services or cloud platform um then you can you can probably see the 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 positions that are uh for my organization roughly and then you can these are either uh based in india greece or the us and they're all remote so yeah narrow down with location and and of course, if, if anyone is interested and, you know, is anyone who's hearing the podcast is interested, um, I guess you're going to post LinkedIn or something and they can reach out personally and I can I can interact with them directly. Yeah, brilliant. I'll take you in the post on LinkedIn and Twitter and all the usual places as well. Um, brilliant. George, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, like I said, just grateful for your time today, mate. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And it's a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, you too. Cheers, George. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Yeah.